hello and welcome to a Darker Days Darkling. This is Darker Days Darkling number 20. And this time around, in a planned series of short Darkling podcasts, uh, I, your single host uh, from the Darker Days, Chris, uh, is joined by a friend of mine and also previous member of my roleplay group, James. And we will be discussing in this series the joys of designing and planning your gaming group, chronicles, and episodes. It'll make more sense with the series as it goes on and as James introduces himself. So, um, let's have a bit of background first on all this. So, James, tell the Darker Days listeners a little about yourself and what you're willing to tell them about yourself. Um, uh, go for it. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I've been a geek pretty much as long as I remember. Um, I played a lot of video games, lots of role-play stuff on the PC uh, and PlayStation. And when I was, my first introduction with pen and paper role-playing, I was actually on holiday. And um, I made friends with a guy who was obviously, he was uh, a bit older than me, and he was obviously bored out of his mind. So he basically ran a Star Wars-themed pen and paper role-play on a jotter pad. Um, and since then, that kind of piqued my interest for it. So I try to get involved as much as I can. Um, I've played some really good games of World of Darkness. I started with uh, Mage, the first one. What, uh, revised edition? More than likely revised, I would guess. It was a, it was a long while back. Um, yeah. I, my storyteller had a few tweets and things to like experience points. But it was, it was a really good game, and I really enjoyed getting getting into the system um, and learning how it played. And then when I've gone on to run games, I've often ended up running uh, Dungeons & Dragons games because it's a lot easier to um, to spin them on the fly. Mm. I've, always found, I've always found storyteller games a little bit intimidating, the idea of running one. Oh, well, that's something we can get more into in a little bit. So, let's see. So, as a bit more context to the listeners, so obviously they're aware that I'm now based in Germany, having moved here since back in December. And the thing is, James is also has, re- well, I say recently, he uh, moved over to Germany a month before I did. So, um, and James, you were part of my own gaming group for how many months? It was, an, it was, it was, you basically you basically left and fucked off to somewhere else before we even finished our Vampire Chronicle. But yeah, you took yeah. part in my Vampire the Requiem game. You also took part in the intro game uh, that I did, which was because obviously we had some people that were new to gaming at that time, which included uh, my wife Sam and also um, some other people. So we um, played some Unhallowed Metropolis, which. Uh, listeners, if you go back a few dark things, we I actually review Unhallowed Metropolis uh, revised, and then of course James actually had the joy of of taking part in uh, Changeling, yeah, uh, in Changeling the Lost Venice, where I ran a uh, kind of a one shot really that was kind of a 
Oh, well, it was just an extra story that we that I created to kind of bookend the uh, chronicle I ran, and so James kind of you you kind of cameoed in it as a um, a changeling tailor. A changeling tailor. Uh, what was it? It was a um, a cloth elemental. Cloth elemental. Yeah. Which is a, a an interesting concept, but works really cool. What other stuff do you get up to, James? Uh, oh, uh, not to I give away to... too much. You're, you're into game design, I guess. We can't say who with or anything. I'm in the aid up to the eyeballs. Exactly. But I, yeah, I work in game design. I've been um, before that. I was a games tester for three years, so I'm I'm used to finding holes in systems. And yeah. Poking yeah. through them. You play a lot of Magic the Gathering as well. I've played a lot of Magic the Gathering back in the day. I think for listeners as well, I, I get, I'm sure they're aware of my gaming history that includes D&D, Vampire the Masquerade, Mage Revised, uh, pretty much all the World of Darkness games, New World of Darkness games going I've either run or played in now. Barring uh, Geist, I've not played or run yet, but then again, we're waiting for the update of that. And... Well, Promethean, maybe? Promethean? Oh, no, I've not run that. Good point. I've not run that or played it, but then that's kind of a scary one to run. And obviously I've worked for Games Workshop part-time, so I've played far too much wargaming stuff, a lot of wargaming stuff. Um, and, yeah, so I'm pretty much into gaming on that side of things. So, um, is there anything else we sh- should say before we carry on with the main bulk of this? We'll cover it in the main show, which I'm sure Mike and I will be recording in the next few weeks. But, um, of course, there's lots of World of Darkness MMO news out there. And we've had some nice uh, stuff in the mailbag. So I'll cover that all in the main show. So let's do the, the really cool stuff now, which is Chronicle Design. So I've got as my show notes here... Darkness Begins, which is basically where the hell do you begin with any of this stuff? To give an idea, I progressed from... I originally got into roleplay gaming through uh, D&D. So D&D Classic Edition box set, the black box with Red Dragon on it, had lots of bits in it. And my parents picked that up as a... Because uh, they from the local model store, gaming store. Uh, simply because it looked like another game. They didn't actually know really what they were picking up. They just knew I did wargaming and thought it was a, 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 a I guess, a, um, a tabletop game of some form, you know, typical board game, which, of course, it was not. And you go through it, and it's the typical shows you how to play through it on a little map, and then you're into, like, designing your own dungeons with grids and levelling up and all those things. And... It was as I was getting into that, um, there was, I don't know, James, if you ever picked up Arcane Magazine when it was out in the UK? They had about, I have. Basically, anyone out there with some money to burn on these things, because they're quite expensive now and rare, they're a series of relatively good um, gaming magazines, independent gaming magazines, such as War Games, CCGs, and Roleplay Games. Uh, which there were about 20-odd issues. It was a UK-based magazine. And the one I got was... Uh, the first one I picked up was, like, issue 12, I think. So already there'd been too many out for me to kind of have the lot. But issue 12 had how to run a political game. And it's the best arcade magazine I have. Um, and if you can find the articles on these things on the web, it's brilliant. But to put it this way, I read it, and I was like... 
bloody hell, that's what I want to run. And I end up running a political game, a political conspiracy game, uh, for a D&D game. Oh, wow. Assassinations and everything, and I made a map of the entire city and a map of the sewer network underneath it. And, yeah. So, that shows you what one article in a good magazine can do to a simple D&D player at the time. You just kind of go, I want to do more stuff with the game rather than just levelling up and putting spikes under doors to stop them closing and stuff. Yeah. Also, in that same magazine, there was a review of Star Wars 2nd Edition Revised, which was by West End Games at the time. And that's a notorious game for having so much stuff that was brought out from the expanded universe. Like, there was metric tons of, like, information for it. I've actually worked on the Star Wars game, and the amount of stuff in the expanded universe is ridiculous. Yeah. You have uh, sentient rocks which have to be put inside a droid, and then they end up being Jedi, and some of them go bad and go to Sith. Yeah. Well, this was obviously when Western Games had the license to it. That was before any prequel films. So, you know, Star Wars was still kind of like not too padded out in... Well, it was padded out, but they were not in... You know, George Lucas hadn't screwed it over anyway. And it was still exci- it was an exciting setting to look at. Yeah. And again, that game um, had a really good... That book and has a really good um, games mastering advice in it on how to get ideas like it was and how to plot uh, your to plan out your chronicles or what that your series of games and plan out your episodes by scenes and it was all about how to like tell a good story and you know feature the idea of scenes very much in the same way that World of Darkness has that. And it was like getting your ideas from, like, you know, newspapers. Just look at the news and, and just twist that story into something more sci-fi. Or from books or film and everything. And also, the the game was very um, was very big on using props. So, if you, could, if you were having starfighter battles, actually have some starfighter figures to represent where things were. Or, or as much kind of, like, visual representation as possible as you could have or, you know, background music, like, you know, so it was like saying, get hold of a Star Wars soundtrack, because everyone will shit their pants when they hear the Imperial March. Yeah. So, you know, that obviously ramped up the style of game I was doing. And then, of course, through another arcade magazine, I learned of Vampire the Masquerade, and I bought that and was like, wow, and that changed everything. So, and of course, when I got Vampire, what was on TV at the time? Season 1 of Angel, so pretty much my entire game was based in, um, it was, my first vampire game was based in San Francisco rather than LA, because LA was too obvious. Um, but, um, yeah, you know, it's like, you know, I've, I've had a, 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 a progression of going from a basic D&D game to something far more complicated, and it just takes the right kind of inspiration for that. Yeah. I, um, Sorry. Go for it, yes. I always find um, I, I've done a lot of D&D games because I, I move around a lot. The terrible thing mm. is you have lots of short-term contracts. Yeah. So, yeah, I've, I've done lots of D&D sessions because they're, they're very simple and it's also really what um, why, what was much easier to get as far as games go. Like, World Darkness books have always been a bit more specialist, whereas um, sometimes even normal bookshops will have D&D. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So, as I say, you, you, you originally said that you find D&D easy to do, and yet World of Darkness yeah. may be intimidating to approach when trying to run a chronicle. 
Um, so let's put this in context for the for the listeners: the fact that you are looking to run a chronicle very soon. Yeah, I. And I, you're starting from scratch. You have mm-hmm. no. You basically you don't have any. It's the first time that you're running. Uh, you're planning on running mage. Yeah, I want to run mage ideally. Yeah. So. Okay, so what is it that you find about World of Darkness intimidating about running it? I I think part of it is I mean you know not 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 to do some blatant factory here but I've I've had some very good storytellers um, you know yourself included thank uh, you and that means that the games I've played have been I I feel like they would be a lot to live up to um, whereas Dungeons and Dragons I've I've had some quite quite bad GMs so usually I, I, there's not that kind of performance. Uh, you know, you, D&D, everyone expects you to pile into a hole in the ground and club mm-hmm. some goblins or stab some orcs. And, you know, that's that's most of what anybody wants. Whereas World of Darkness, lots of people have um, quite high expectations. So they want these they want these epics, they want these conspiracies, they want backstabbing, they want darkness, they want gritty, they want, they want stories that kind of... Uh, they want elaborate stories that kind of weave together themes and plots. And that's that's tricky to fit around things as well, like to try and to be working in a, well, in an industry where you can suddenly be given lots of extra hours in a week. Mm. Having the time to do that planning is like, yeah, I've I've gone to D&D sessions before and just flown by the seat of my pants for a whole four-hour session. And, yeah. Um, okay. Well, I think that's that's all fair enough. I think a lot of people would sympathise with that. Now, most of your stuff that you've run for D and D, how would you describe them? Were they one big on-running story? Were they more, or was it more sandbox, or you know, um, was it stuff that was played out of the box essentially? I've I've not really run anything from pre-written adventures. Okay. Um, I've always come up with something, um, and generally, uh, originally. Originally, my first big campaign I created was, uh, a, I mean, it, it, it sounds kind of twee now, but it was it was a plane where the balance of good and evil had gone completely skewed with, and evil had been exiled. So they were evil characters coming to try and <laughs> try and right the wrong in a very evil way. They they managed to slip slip through, and people weren't really expecting them. Yeah. Um, and it was it was quite interesting. Um, for me, because it was like my first my first big campaign, I turned to just like little one-offs here and there. But I did a lot of preparation work, and then the players completely, utterly smashed through everything I've carefully prepared. Mm. So after that, I think like I prepared something that I thought would last me maybe two months, and they got through it in two sessions. <laughs> yeah. So then it was just like. Okay, right. Um, there is a thing here, and you will deal with this, and this stuff happens, and there are traps and monsters and things appearing as I can think of them. And that actually, they seemed to enjoy. They seemed to enjoy that more than my um, my carefully created stuff. So I think that's why I got into that habit of running D and D like off the top of my head. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's often. I think there's. It depends upon what the expectation of the game is, and I often make it clear to players, or especially when it's a brand new group of people playing in games that I run, I make it 
very clear the type of game I'm going to run and what I'm not going to run. Yeah. And, you know, one of the... The idea that you can play D&D... D&D has, can be played in many different ways, but also the default kind of approach is that very antagonistic kind of I'm the DM and you're the players and... You know, I'm out to kill you. Yeah, yeah. Rather, than, rather than the idea of we're out to tell a good story, whether all the characters survive or not is a question of, of appropriate drama within the story, not about whether... I'm I'm beating you or you're beating me. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've been in I've been in a lot of D and D campaigns where the DM is specifically out to rack up a kill count. Hmm. And yeah, again, I've even berated a person for for uh, essentially killing off their entire party of characters when um, from what they were telling me is they planned this whole load of stuff and then. He had a total party kill in the very first session of the game, and I was what? like, well, "What's the point? You know, what is the point of killing off the entire party?" Yeah, it doesn't. I mean, really, yeah, that's that's one of the things that is so different about World of Darkness that the, um, or at least that appears different about World of Darkness is that the storyteller is he's a, he's a storyteller. He's collaborating with the players to to create something. Um, I mean, if your players do something stupid, then, you know, they can create an absolute mess <laughs> um, and get themselves into all kinds of trouble. But you're trying to you're trying to make something interesting for everyone to just slap people down. Mm. Okay, so we have, we have your expectations of what you think you should include in a, a, a D&D game, uh, not a D&D game, a World of Darkness <laughs> game should include as opposed to, say, a D&D game. Okay, and I would say these expectations are the same for any other type of game. I mean, let's look at how I ran Unholy Metropolis was essentially a World of Darkness game that was tongue-in-cheek, or um, the same sort of of expectations I would um, I would have of a D and D game, uh, <laughs> World of Darkness game. I would have of say um, something sci-fi wise, you know, Star Wars or uh, Fading Suns. I run in exactly the same manner. Or even something more fancy style again, Exalted or um, Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay. So let's look at how you the choices to make when beginning to uh, you know create your chronicle. D and D you can play as I say as modules, or you can play it as kind of like you go through dungeon upon dungeon upon dungeon and map upon map upon map, and that's basically one big long story or very sandbox. Or you could play in a very episodic manner, so um, where the chronicle, the series of games, are all tied together to create one big plot, very much like any TV series where there are a number of subplots and story arcs, and uh, or you could play in a very sandbox way where um, you have you're given the setting and you don't really have a, a designated end to the series of the story. You just keep playing and let the setting react to the player's actions, and you know it's very sandbox in that sense. And you can compare this to different ways and say games work. So, for example, you know Grand Theft Auto is maybe one of the best examples of something that's very considered very sandbox in some respects, but can also be considered very episodic in others because you have a series of missions in there. Um, you can even say a game like Assassin's Creed is very uh, episodic and and has sandbox yeah. elements because again 
you can um you have set store story arcs within it to go through yet you don't have to go through them you know a to b to c you can actually do you know b c d and e you cannot all be played in any order but it still gets you to the same end hmm. um i mean the world's the world's not so reactive in games like assassin's creed um no I'm trying to think of uh, well, it's not when you say that. It depends which which one you've played. I mean, depending upon what things you do at certain times, the 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 world can be your your next move can be more or less challenging. Whether you know you've taken out a certain guard tower early or not, so you can have that and and like the same in like um, Grand Theft Auto Vice City. Depending upon which order you do the missions in, uh, it can actually make a difference of how violent gangs are to you at one, at particular points in the game. So certain side missions are easier to do if you haven't done the main plot bits earlier because then you're not going to get shot when you go into those areas. So um, now you're planning, what, something more episodic, would you say? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I have, um, I've been thinking a lot about stories that I, the story that I liked. And I, I mean, I, I guess like part of it is based on, I've, I've been watching a lot of Buffy. Recently, yes. And, um, I like I like how smaller episodes, even though they might not seem to have particularly much to do with the grand plot, contribute in in their own way. And this is this is something that continues in shows like Supernatural and Warehouse Thirteen um, and X Files and all kinds of things, where uh, something in the episode will will go on to character development. For example, characters will switch places, and one of them will get one of them will mention how hard it is in the new characters in the other characters' position. And that kind of stuff really helps. Though though this focus of the episode is different. Like it's on a particular monster of the week or science of the week kind of thing. You have it building towards some big revelation at the end of the series. Yeah. Um, and that's that's kind of what I'd like to do. I'd like to have a a climax to kind of a series of events. Mm-hmm. Um and I think that's also easier to deal with because the players that I will likely have when I manage to um, get started are all going to be new players. Yeah. So I don't. I want to be able to introduce them to small things that they can overcome, and they can actually think like, "Yes, we are. We are being presented with problems, and we are solving them." Yeah. Um, so it kind of allows you to showcase parts of the the setting and the game in manageable. In a manageable manner. Exactly. Um, I think the important thing to note with episodic is that you have to be careful with episodic, but it's not railroading. So my point with episodic is that you should plan ahead. Well, I mean, of course, we'll talk about planning in another in another show. But when you plan ahead, that when you plan out an episode, you you're trying to t- you're trying to resolve. certain plot arcs or move certain plot arcs forward but that doesn't mean that you're you're railroading the players into taking certain actions without any any kind of choices there and this goes and this all ties into the idea of essentially um how the setting how you run the setting and getting the setting to feel like it's reactive and proactive, so that the player's actions have consequences. My cl- the classic thing with this is that you you could you should really have the op- have the, have the opportunity when you start building up multiple plot lines in your chronicle 
mm-hmm. in your episode. So you've got like a main arc and maybe a secondary arc and then a few character subplots that when um when you uh look at these plots that the players can be what you're hoping is that maybe that the players can be inadvertently forced into a scenario where they have to choose between whether they act upon one line or act upon another. And it means that they have to take a choice on whether they think one thing's more important than another thing. And even if they therefore don't interact with a certain plot line, that plot line still progresses. It's just that they haven't acted upon it. And so this is something that I've spoken about with um, with another person that's played in, in uh, you know, David, who's played in my Exalted stuff. He asked me once, well, why do you plan out so much stuff if it's not going to occur in an episode or ever? And my, the whole idea for me is we, we came to realisation, we talked about this on a, um, on a blog uh, post that's, oh, I think we, uh, I copied it over to the Dark Days Posterous account. And it's the idea of the null hypothesis that I set up episodic chronicles on in a way that it's the idea that all these events will occur if the players did not interact with the plot whatsoever. And so I'm constantly, as the chronicle goes on, you're constantly updating when things should occur or even if they can occur to represent the fact that the players are perturbing the course of events and NPCs are reacting to the player actions. And of course you can have that for sandbox quite happily or one long story. The difference is really how you're showcasing the story and I think episodic is is better because I prefer episodic anyway because you can you can really focus the limelight on a player or two per episode or you can an episode can really focus on a certain theme. Yeah. Um, that helps bring bring players to to develop their characters if you have something um, for example the the changing game that I played in um, mm-hmm. there was quite a focus on dreams yeah so everyone had a section where they were dreaming and that really kind of showed me who some of the characters were mm. because people would explain you know what kind of place they were dreaming of and like their fears in the dream what they would be and that was that was really interesting um, and you get like character development is always great because you it makes the game um, and it makes it makes its own kind of gameplay as well. Um, I mean that's the key thing you've said there is it's about character development and in particular when you get Chronicles started is um, and again we'll cover this in a further show but uh, is ensuring that players are aware that the game there's only so much that the G, the storyteller should be bringing to the table. I always feel like I'm bringing the setting and I'm bringing the NPCs and the, the plot. And with the players, I expect them to bring, you know, fully fleshed out characters. Because I need to feel that the characters are able to interact in the world. I don't want them just going, what's the mission? Mm-hmm. Like, no, you're not on a quest. You're not on a mission. Your character lives in this world. Things are happening. Shit is there to be dealt with. You know, it's not... There isn't a monster to kill. Yeah, you're not collecting five pig bladders. So, in summary, we have, of our three Chronicle Cells, we have, we, um, we've spoken a lot now about... for almost half an hour, <laughs> about Sandbox and one long story and episodic and I think also the key point with episodic is to point out that 
when I say episodes, that's different to game session, because obviously for me, an episode can take place over one or more game sessions. It's just that you you know where one episode ends because there is a, a certain degree of plot resolution. Mm. So, moving on from that, because obviously we've spoken about Chronicles, uh, the type of, type of Chronicle style, we're going to look now at inspiration for the setting and where to set the game. Okay, so let's off with where to set, set the game, because again, this is something that you've considered a lot, something I'm considering, that I consider a lot, and, um, and everyone, all the listeners to Dark Days are quite aware that I set my vampire game in Manchester, my change game takes place in Venice, and that my future mage game and future werewolf game, when I get around to those, will also be set, those two will be set in Manchester as well. Yeah. And that I have ideas that I'm looking at running Geistum in the future at some point, maybe based in somewhere like Paris or Prague. Okay. But, we'll, but we'll get on to why Prague doesn't kind of make sense in a moment. Now, one of the things that always comes up with where to set a game is whether to use a real or made-up location. Now, there is a wonderful, wonderful book which will help with all of this. It's uh, it's a Vampire the Requiem book, but it's completely valid for pretty much any New World of Darkness or Old World of Darkness game. It has a lot of tools in there to... Uh, help you manage your setting, uh, in particular if it is a city, and that book is Damnation City. It's a monstrous book filled with loads of discussion on how to make use of different elements within a city, how to how to uh, how to describe your city to players, and how it would in- how they how it would influence them, and in return how they influence it. The other important thing in that book is that it gives a quick discussion of certain cities around the world, very brief descriptions, to, to try and just point out how cities are, are different around the world. And also, there is a example setting in that book. I think the actual setting is, um, I think it's called Newcastle. But it's a it's a um, it's a made up setting. It's a made up city. Uh, they give you an entire map for it, and pretty much all the information required to use that as the setting for your vampire game. Now, what's your view on it? And tell us about what you're thinking about for your your own game. Well, I I think there is. I mean, as, as maybe as a game designer, there's certainly something handy about custom building your city because you can make sure it has exactly what you want and yeah there's this wonderful, wonderful thing in um, one of the episodes of Buffy that I saw so recently surprise surprise uh, where someone finds out that the monster they're after is in a graveyard and one of the other characters is like okay sure yeah no it's easy you know there'll be like what one two graveyards and the other character mentions that actually there's like 13 graveyards in Sunnydale which is a ridiculous amount but for the setting it makes sense because it's absolutely full of vampires, and that's one of the one of the nice things about custom building your own city. No one can really second guess you, and you can make sure you have a like a variety of interesting locations. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's the that's the obvious the first obvious advantage of using a custom made si- uh, setting city, whatever. 
is that you as a storyteller have full control over the details of it. And you can't have a player go, well, no, you're wrong, that place isn't there, it's actually over here. So that couldn't happen. But then that, to me, is just a sign of not doing your research properly. It, um, it does. It does make things a little bit wishy-washy when you don't have when you don't have anything particularly solid for the players to hold on to. They can't. I think somewhere that you've created generally doesn't have the same natural feel as a real city. Um, yeah. And I'm I'm in Hamburg at the moment, and I've been looking at Hamburg just because I'm kind of interested, but also as a potential setting for my campaign. And I wasn't expecting there to be as much stuff as actually turned up uh, when I was looking through, like, histories and things. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I did found actually has worked. It's given me quite a few ideas for uh, potential potential storylines or episodes. And I think that's something that a real city, kind of, like, a real city just gives you. You there There is a history. There is, even just the feel of a city, you can understand... You can understand what it looks like, what it feels like, and it's it's handy to have as a men- mentally to to relate to your players. Yeah, makes sense. No, um, that does that does make sense because I think I think when uh, how Hollywood has uh, affected Hollywood and kind of like mainstream TV and film has affected our view our, our, our impressions of places when we go on holiday to these places because they're so. They're, they're, they're so prevalent in the in kind of like in everyday knowledge. So when you say, so you're in New York, and immediately multiple images will flash to your mind of what New York looks like. Yeah. And the same happens if you say you're in London or you're in um, you're in Venice. <laughs> obviously, you know you can. The nice thing is that you can you can choosing real places. You can pick cities and. They they have some sort of iconic imagery with them, regardless of which city it is or how well known it is. There is you can you can really make use of that, and I feel like that the best thing about making use of a real location is that usually it's stranger than you'd actually it would have something strange something stranger in its history or or yeah. its layout or its design that you working from scratch could never conceive of. And also, I feel that as long as you as a storyteller have done sufficient research beforehand on said location for your game, which, you know, some people might go, well, that just sounds a bit too much hard work. I don't want to do that. I just want to get into playing the game. Well, fine. But I'm all about trying to give an immersive feeling to the players that they actually, you know, their characters are in the city and walking the streets of it. Or, or, or I say city, I mean whatever location and I think using real places gives as long as you've done the research so that players don't have the drop on you going using out of game knowledge because even though they're not meant to you know they do sometimes it means that players still have the opportunity then to do some real world research if they want so if they go well I want to play this character does that kind of make sense? You know, like, well, I'm not too sure about... You could say, say they want to play a businessman who's in a particular type of trade, maybe, um, like wherever it's, say, automotive industry or something. You can you can give that back as a as a, as a exercise for your players to, to go back through and, and research that in the setting to go, well, 
the city has this. It doesn't have as much of an automotive industry as I as I originally thought it would have. But there's a few things outside of the city that kind of fit, and it means then that the the you've given a reason for the players to to do their own research on the city and just get more and more attached to the setting. And you can't really do you can't really do that with your own with your own setting because you've got to write literally the entire history. Now some people will go, well, you've just got to write out the main events in in the timeline of the city. It's like, well, that all sounds very easy if say you're trying to make up just. I, mean, I don't want to be. I don't want to sound kind of kind of uh, snarky or anything, but that seems fairly easy to just make up a, a city out in in the middle of America because. You don't have to write maybe too much history. But, you know, I couldn't write a history that could, for a made-up city that could compare to the actual history of Manchester, for example. There is far too much shit that has happened there. Just far too much. Too many events that can be used for any... linked to any supernatural creatures or whatever, you know, working over the ages. And the same for Venice. I mean, you just can't make that crap up. It's just so... You know, Venice is so unique and, you know, so many events and happenstance come come around to shape that city as it is. You know, it would require too many man-hours for me to write that. It's far easier for me to just do the research and and work out what fits into my game and what, you know, which characters in, in its history, what events in its history are tied to certain supernatural factions, etc. Yeah, like, um, I mean, I've, I've found some stuff like that with, uh, with Hamburg even. I thought there wasn't really going to be that much. And I've uncovered some very bizarre occurrences. Um, mm. And that's, I mean, I, I may be jumping the gun here with the, the topics we're talking about, but like, it's been the things that I've, I've found out while doing the research have actually inspired direction of the campaign that, or some of the ideas in the campaign that I really wanted to and that's that's something that you get in a real city because in in a real city it's not just um, when you design a city the city has a history but it's the city as a whole when you when you have a real city areas have a history streets will have a history and everything like it all builds into itself it's even the smallest locations have had things happen whereas yeah when it's when it's something you're making from nowhere you know There'll be there'll be streets and it's just this this is a street that connects one place to another mm. um, and it doesn't it doesn't have any existence it doesn't have any weight. Yeah, that's definitely. I think that's it, it, as you say. It just feels a little kind of a little um, it lacks depth and it, it it doesn't really. I find it just doesn't help support the game as well. I mean, it just you're left on your own really when you need to to um, add something new to the city. Whereas if you if you sort of run out of a few ideas where you're you're not too sure of what the next episode or story you want to run in that city is, it only takes you to read through, do a bit more research on something and go, Oh, I totally forgot about that event whenever that occurred. I could use that you know, in this and you know, suddenly you have a whole new plot line. Yeah. So I guess we're both of the mind that Real is better than made up, or at least yeah. easier to work with to a, to 
to a certain degree. I mean, you, you yeah, you've you've immediately got source material to build upon. The only work you then, as a ST, have to do is really choose choose how to weave your supernatural events through history. Obviously, it depends how far back in time you want to write events. I'm obviously the type of person that likes to go back as far as possible because I like there to be the feeling of the weight of ages of, upon events. Now, I've also written down here where, uh, under where to set the game. What size of location? Because, of course, not all cities are the same size. Let's take, for example, again, the classic example is Venice. Venice is a, has been down the ages of critical importance, but Venice is not very big. It really isn't. You can, I would estimate it would take you the better part of a, it would take you the best part of two hours to walk from one side of Venice to the other. Well, that's not very big at all. No. And it only takes that long because as the crow flies, it's even shorter. It's just simply because it's not a straight line. And it's certainly not a straight line even compared to the, to say, walking through the inner city of, say, Paris. Paris mm. is, is a large city, but I can tell you, you can walk, it's, to go about the inner city, it's easy to walk around, um, and you can get from one end, you can basically get from one end of the, of the main city centre to the other in about the space of half an hour to an hour. And, but the difference then is obviously, one city is more spread out, more populous, another city is more densely packed together, maybe not as populous, but they still have importance, they still have history, and it's how you use them. So this is why I often always question when people go, always look at Venice, say, oh, it'd be a perfect location for vampires. And it's like, well, it's kind of tiny, and it's filled with tourists. So it has too many things, it's got too many opportunities where the masquerade would be quite easily broken. So, you know, you've got these things that you can think about for when you choose a location, you know, consider its size and its infrastructure and its connections to places and, and how that would shape the population of of whatever supernatural things are there. You know, again, it's like comparing, say, compare, say, London. London's fucking huge. Yeah. London's massive. And you then compare that to, say, if you wanted to run, you know, choose a, another city in the UK. And we can consider, I'm trying, just trying to think of a, a city that's quite, it's actually in comparison quite small. It's still a city, but it's very small. It makes, it's the whole difference of, of how that can influence the, the type of game you're running and really, um, the cast of characters you have to write. Because a smaller setting can also mean that your, that player characters can have, be, have more, can easily have more importance to the setting if that makes sense. Yeah. Because you've got a smaller cast, you've got a smaller cast. So, the example would be, if you've got a very small city, then the vampire population is going to be very small. There might be someone that calls himself prince of the city, but it, it pretty much, all the vampires in the city have a role to play, because everyone has to, those roles have to be fulfilled for, the, for everything to work right. Whereas if you choose a larger location, then, you know, your player characters could be just a, any old group that blends into the background of the whole multitude of people that exist there. Yeah, people who really slip between the uh, slip between gaps. 
Yeah, exactly. So I think, you know, you can, when choosing a location or, or, or creating your own location, that thinking about the size of the place is quite important because it, and again, like, there's nothing stopping someone, say, running London, running their setting as London, maybe, but only focusing on, on depicting characters and events mainly from a particular portion. Mm-hmm. And that way it gives the idea of, like, you know, how the things that are important to them that influence them are the local personal horrors in that area. And it really gives a sense of, of grandeur then. Like, if you go, well, your characters have their, their havens and everything in this one area of the city, we'll be dealing with stories that all deal with this one area of the city. So, breach, so again, go back to Masquerade, so Breach of the Masquerade, or, or uh, if it was Mage, Hauntings, or so forth in the, that area. But then you can also ha- introduce into the game, like, plot hooks and rumours that relate to the, the larger city as a whole. And it really gives the play. You could then give the ideas, the idea for the players, the sense of how the things they're dealing with are really a small part of something that is a lot larger. And it means then you could almost run a chronicle where you're kind of peeling away the layers, where the game starts off very small and very local, and then as the players increase in prominence, perhaps, or your plot at least increases in prominence, that you reveal more of the setting. So how big so how big is Hamburg would you say in comparison to Manchester because obviously you've you've lived in Manchester for a time period and I have as well so how big is Hamburg in comparison I think Hamburg I think it might be bigger but it doesn't feel bigger if that makes any sense is that because it's one of the, again is it so if it's bigger is it bigger in the sense that it's got a very large city center that goes out into the suburbs I think there's like the the space of Hamburg. There's the suburb. The suburbs are kind of all connected into it with the, the um, with the rail networks and things. So the area that it kind of draws people in from is quite large. The city centre itself is what? How does it feel? I mean, how would you describe it? How well, the city centre is is nothing. There's hardly anything there, um, and that's that's the thing. Like there's there's lots and lots of people living there. But the actual the actual very centre doesn't feel like there's very much. Um, yeah. There's there's a big lake which is the Alster, and around that there's like a cluster of there's, the shops are clustered and things, and there's my office, and then you get a little bit south from that, and you find the Elbe, mm-hmm. and then once you get past the Elbe, there's actually there's actually quite a large amount of uh, there's like quite a large set of living spaces there, but. Um, there seems to be this general consensus that everything south of the river is, it just doesn't exist. There's nothing south of the river. <laughs> but that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. For World of Darkness, the fact that everyone has convinced themselves that nothing south of the river exists yeah. is, is amazing. Um, and that's, I mean, this is one of the, the things that really wanted me to, well, inspired me to try and push my age is the game that I ran. Hmm. Or that I will run, even. Because there's just seems there's a lot of perception things with perception here. Like for me, coming from England, you know, I'm not used to the amount of smoking that goes on here. But mm. it's it is absolutely crazy the amount of people that smoke. You can step out into the fresh air and it smells of cigarettes. Yeah. Even on a windy day, and it's the cigarettes smell very strong, and that's just like yeah, to me it's very strange. But to everyone who's lived here in Hamburg, it's um, it's nothing. Okay. 
Because, yeah, I, I understand what you're saying about Hamburg, because Berlin I found quite striking, because I've recently been to uh, Berlin, and it's it's hard to put into words as a city. You know, it's, it's very difficult to... Con- it's such a it's such a strange it's 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 got a very strange feel to it because it feels so very open yet it has quite huge buildings when it wants to in like in places and has a lot of open space and obviously that's the weight of ages on you when you consider what events have occurred in history and um yeah it's it's um I would say Berlin reminded me a lot of places like Manchester to begin with, uh New York, it has that kind of feel to it. Certain buildings are old enough to give you kind of to be more reminiscent of things from uh from more like from London. And you know, then you've got hideous, you know, concrete monstrosities that, you know, date from the Soviet period. So um yeah, it's again. That's a, it's an interesting city. It's a city I would love to run a game set there, but I don't think. And this is actually this is something that's quite important when considering where to set your games. Is do it justice. And when I say do it justice, it's not to do not just to do a shoddy, you know, just to not do your research, but also do your research in such a way that you're also being fair to the place because. I personally, knowing that I will be gaming with with you know, people that live over here, I wouldn't feel comfortable running a game set in Berlin. Quite simply because I don't know how to approach the, the content of the city's history. Simply because I want to be respectful, because I want to acknowledge what's happened, but also I don't want to be disrespectful and lay it on too thick. And you know, these this is this is something. If if people really want to hit look at a good example of where White Wolf has tackled this issue, a book for Wraith. So we're talking classic World of Darkness here, called Channel Houses of Europe. It's under the Black Dogs imprint, and I think it's basically I've personally not read it, but I I know of its existence, and I, I think I flipped through it. But it discusses the events around, you know, around the world wars and, you know, how, you know, people have died and lots of people died and, you know, there are obviously ghosts and wraiths and you want to deal with those type of stories in a respectful manner. So be respectful if you, when you use a real location, of course, be respectful of what things may have happened in its history and don't just don't don't use derogatory stereotypes of its history. Another option, of course, for your setting that we haven't uh, spoken about here, James, is the road trip. Is a classic example. Um, my personal favourite idea for running Promethean: uh, a road trip across Europe. So think like think the Winchester Brothers, but across Europe. And you know it means each episode. Uh, they could be, a, they could feasibly in a different country, uh, different social etiquette problems, different language problems, you know, all those things. It would be perfect, and it really fits in with Promethean. But I think it could be perfect, really, for any any game uh, whatsoever. Would be it'd be amazing to run a road trip type story. I mean, it's obviously maybe a bit harder for something like Vampire, but. At least it's not completely unfeasible for Vampire if you do a road trip, because, of course, then you've got the, the whole... Uh, you, you're always playing up with that, you know, racing to find somewhere before sunrise. And 
Yeah, but Road Trip is also quite a great game, uh, quite a great way of running a Chronicle, because I've played in a uh, Vampire the Dark Ages Chronicle, where literally the, the troop of vampires was moving across Europe. And, you know, they went to Venice, they went to England, they went to... Uh, I think they went to the island of Santorini, which is in Greece, which is an old volcano. Uh, and they also, you know, went to Jerusalem, because we played through some of the supplements. And so a road trip is brilliant to showcase different, you know, paranormal entities from around the world and and history and culture. So, yeah, I think that really covers it, doesn't it? About locations and things to choose and things to consider and just to do, do your research, really. Yeah. I was just going to say on the topic of road trips, another most, and most thing about them is that you can... If you're road tripping, you can have places based on you can have real places, but you can also have fictional, and that's quite a nice way to to get the best of both worlds. You can have you can go to a, a real city and in, and have experience of history, but you could also maybe turn up at Innsmouth, for example. Yeah, um, and or Stokesford if you want to go for the UK kind of Cthulhu location. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. That's that's true. Oh, the other thing I was going to say with whether you choose where you choose a location. I often, I think, if you are choosing a real-world location to set your game, either choose somewhere which is featured heavily in TV and cinema, or use somewhere you have actually been and spent some time there. Because I think it's one thing to run a game in London, setting London, because everyone has a feel for what London looks like, even though really what they think is London is a small fraction of the story, the same as it is with New York. But at least all the visual cues are, are there in people's minds already when they sit down at the table to play the game. Um, if it's somewhere else, somewhere not as as uh, as well known, I think it's more important to at least the st- the person running the game to have been there to then also you know make sure you put on your blog or wherever you're you're keeping any notes or or say you've got a slideshow that you run on your your TV when you're running the game to have pictures from that that of that location of that from that city just because it it adds to the um, the immersion and it means people get a feel for what the city actually looks like because you know cities have a character they have a, a definite mood and a definite definite theme to them okay so the last thing we want to cover is inspiration for your setting. Where do we look for things? Is there such a thing as too much? Okay, I think we'll address the, the last thing first. Is there such a thing as too much for your setting? I think what I meant by that when I wrote down in my show notes here is don't feel like you have to put everything in. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. If you, if you try and cram in vampires and werewolves and geists and all of that into every location you arrive at, it's going to be it's going to be too much. Yeah. If you turn up in a little village with thirty people and then there's a thriving vampire population, it you know, it just doesn't it doesn't work. Also I think it's important to um to consider what ru- what rules and what parts of, of this, or even one of the game lines you're wanting to implement. So again, like for example, what we said about Changeling, the the dream mechanics in Changeling, there is a lot there to use, and 
you know, some of these books are really, really big, and there's a lot of rules in there to use that you could make use of, and there's a lot of there's a lot of setting material that you can make use of, but it doesn't mean you have to use put it all in the game. You don't have to like say for Mage have have the game deal with all of the Pentacle Orders and then all of the Seers of the Throne and then uh, the Apostates and then all the Mad and then Abyssal Entities and Spirits and Ghosts and then all other Paranormal you know, It's just like, you know, feel like you can you know, set a limit on what you should be considering putting into your game to begin with and then if you feel you have exhausted or showcased them enough you can introduce more stuff later as you feel more comfortable. And when you showcase things, you don't have to do it, you know, full blow away like you go, well, we're playing a game of Mage, but this is a vampire, so now I'm going to basically bring in the entire Requiem setting. It's like, no, 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 you don't, you don't, you can definitely draw nice, clear borders between, between things, and you can just introduce things in such a way that you, you add a little bit of mystery back into your game every so often, so that it always keeps it quite fresh. So, for example, I've introduced, like, had uh, in changing the characters not realised that they were up against uh, a Promethean. Because they just didn't know. They just thought, uh, its powers are a bit weird, I'm scared of it, kill it. So, I mean, you've, you're mostly thinking about this quite a lot because um, you're considering this for your mage game, then. So you've got, am I right in thinking you have a definite, uh, in, my, in mind, some what content from the main book you want to use and that you're not going to use? My my inspiration has mostly been from um, a story perspective, like where I'm going to go with where I want to go with plots and things, and what kind of elements I I want to highlight with people. So I'm I'm still uh, I'm still at a very early stage with reading through books. Um, yeah, and I'm I'm going over them again and again, but I I'm I'm working mostly from core books, so I have, uh, I mean, my my whole library here is, I have my Mage the Awakening book, I have my Chronicler's Guide, and then I have my World of Darkness core book. But that's pretty much what you really need to get started. I mean, again, I mean, it, it can be quite overwhelming to to new storytellers to feel maybe that they have to read all the whole host of books. You really don't. There's There's enough there to get started with uh, in those core books and I think you can get a lot of gameplay out of it well before you need to think that you need to read anything else. I think the other books are there are really good when you want to feel like you want to add a bit more detail like I imagine for what what you've told me of your the chronicle that you, you are planning on running that the Seers of the Throne book is quite critical yeah yeah, and um, it's a bloody good book. And yeah, if anyone, yeah, go back to the most recent Darker Days podcast where we had Dave Brookshaw on uh, talking about Sears of the Throne. Um, yeah, it's an awesome book. Check it out. There's plenty of information in there uh, to add a bit more detail. But in the core book, there's enough there about the Sears of the Throne to make them a scary antagonist. Correct. Yeah. I think the important thing here is that if you're getting into a chronicle, especially if you're just starting out, you don't have to have had, you know, don't have to have read all of the setting books. You know, just there's enough in a core to get you going, and you don't need to include multitudes of different paranormal creatures. I mean, if you really want to have different paranormal creatures, please, please just go back to the core book and make use of 
the ghost slash spirit rules and yeah, you can create many different monstrosities out of those before you even have to look at like including things from different splats. Yeah, and if you really want to have some more solid rules or something, there's always books like what Antagonists because that has plenty of different rules and has make your own zombie rules in it. What's another good book that has different weird things in there? Possibly Urban Legends. Yeah. Okay, so finally, inspiration for your setting. So you said you've let's let's um let's let's really get behind your your um thinking process for your upcoming mage game then. Okay. So your main source of inspiration you would say are the city of Hamburg itself? Yeah, yeah. Hamburg's Hamburg's actually given me a lot to think about. And I I've gone around and I've had a look at some museums and they they've really highlighted some bizarre bizarre stuff. And it gets you it gets you thinking. But then there's also I've also had I've also been inspired by different um, just different locations and the changes in uh, there's there's an artistic quarter which has basically been what's the word? um it's been taken over by people who it it was cheap all the artists lived there then it became very popular because it's a cultural quarter and all the money moved there so the artists can't live there anymore so a bit like the situation in Berlin right now as well because that's happening with East Berlin gentrification mm. Gentrification. That's what they yeah, mean. they're really, they're really against that over here. They really fucking hate it. Which, uh, to be honest, I don't blame them because you know, look at what happens with London. You know, they gentrified places like um, somewhere that was hip and happening, say like Camden, and now now the next big place is uh, Shoreditch. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, carrying on. But yes, that's that's kind of made me think about like the fact that. Culture is being crushed by money, and mm. that that kind of that's that reminded me of things like the Invisibles. Um, yes, and as soon as you get to the Invisibles, you've practically got like you've got a good setup for a mage game there. Yeah, um, if you because Invisibles obviously is uh, is one of the prime sources of reference for Mage: The Awakening. Um, if anything, Mage Awakening feels more like the Invisibles than you know, uh, Mage Ascension. Have you? I would suggest I've I've got like the first three issues on my tablet because um, you can down on the comic app. Another because Invisibles is Warren Ellis, is it? Um, Grant. It's Grant. No, it's Grant. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Get confused. Anyway, another good series is uh, Transmetropolitan. I mm. I. I think I've read one of them, um, but it, it seemed it seemed bizarre. But in I think it, I think you would find it bizarre, but useful for possibly some inspiration for um, your series of the throne, hmm. especially for something like um, Panopticon. Okay. Yeah, basically, you know how much did you hear how much I waxed lyrical about Panopticon in the in the um, in Darker Days Thirty Four? It was like, oh yeah, love Panopticon. <laughs> Um, but I mean, for you, I mean, for your series of throne, as you were saying about the whole money and corporations crushing people's freedom, that's very much a, a classic kind of free council versus uh, the um, series of the throne. In particular, there's um, there's a group of the series of the throne called uh, the what the hell's their name? Um, oh wait, have we... no, it's, it's not the it's the Ministry of I can't remember what the Ministry of Ministry of Memon. 
Yeah, it is my mon. Yeah. Which is I've, I've got funny. my notes from um, when we had a chat before. So. Good. Good. <laughs> All right. I did, so I did reference it properly. Cool. Okay. So, so obviously comic books are having an important influence on what you're doing, and the actual history of of a place, the actual culture and the society of of a place is influencing things. Um, I guess then, in the same respects, even uh, political mo- political events recently are mostly kind of inspirational for how um, your chronicle w- would work. Because I can see uh, you gain quite a bit of inspiration from like stuff to do with like uh, you know anonymous and 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 lolsec and all that stuff, with ha- and how hackers work. Because again, that's a very much kind of like you know freedom versus control. Yeah, and I mean. You know, it's it's a big debate, but I I personally thought the way that some of the, that some of the lolsec and the anonymous stuff went was more harmful than the control that they were rally, raving against. Well, it gets even more complicated when you consider that uh, recently was it possibly it's real that possibly some of the people behind these organisations or involved in these organisations were actually you know kind of like double agents, so they were actually working for, like, CIA or FBI, which, of course, is brilliant conspiracy-type inspiration because you have to look at, again, if you look at Mage, you've got one group which is all about mysteries and conspiracies, which is the Guardians of the Veil, and then you've got another group who are all about conspiracies and mysteries and control, the Seas of the Throne, and... They're literally involved in a shadow conspiracy war with each other where they've got double agents, triple agents, whatever the hell's going on. And you've got that, that whole sense of paranoia due to you never know who's listening, watching, or or uh, when I say listening or watching, whether that's by mundane methods or by magic. Yeah, um, and that's it's a creepy position to be in. When you, you don't really know, you don't really know who who's listening, but you don't know who to trust either. Yeah. And that's, that's, that was a big component of the mage games that I used to play in. Um, uh, we got started and we had some, some Gandalf character telling us like, oh right, you know, there's a thing and you need to go and do it. And we went, okay, sure, right, that, that's what you do. And then as we went on and did these tasks for him, we started to really think like, the stuff we're doing is pretty, um, pretty dubious. <laughs> is, is our boss a dick? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, uh, you only, I know where you're coming from with that. You only have to play in a, in a technocracy game and you immediately go into the game going, my boss is possibly a dick. And then you're, you're basically spending probably half the Chronicle trying to prove whether he is or not and then realising, well, maybe he is, but actually the bad guy isn't, though, isn't these people in our organisation. It's this guy over here. It got very, very, um, yeah, it can get very complicated, and but it's one of the best things about um, the game. But then you said about the whole Gandalf character thing, that's quite important because, you know, it's, it's, it's a, that is a perfect teaching tool for your players because you suddenly make them proactive because they start realising that we've been given a mission or a job or a quest, uh, for want of a better term, but anyway... They've got a task to do, and then and then they've been blindly following orders, and then suddenly the players have to will hopefully realise that actually that isn't the best thing. They should come up with their own plan of action more often, 
and be more proactive. Which goes back to my whole thing about how a chronicle can have this event calendar that gets modified by player action. Okay, cool. What um, what other stuff's been? So based? you've been watching a lot of Buffy. <laughs> I've been watching a lot of Buffy, but I this is like things like Buffy. Um, I've, I've mentioned for Warehouse Thirteen, Supernatural. Um, I would say the cool thing with those with those things is that they potentially even if they're not an immediate source of plot lines, they're a good example of pacing of a story or how much content to put into a story. Well, I say into a story, into an episode. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense for you? Yeah, but you, the, the kind of stories that you deal with, then most things are a one-episode shot, but you, over the course of a season, you have the big story that you're working towards. Mm. Um, and, yeah, you kind of get a feel that a monster... Sometimes a monster doesn't really have to stay around for very long. A threat can raise its head and players can deal with it. And that, that can actually be enough. Yeah. The fact that they've, they've dealt with something because it's, it's what that threat makes them, makes them realize. And that's, for me, that's the real meat of it. Like if you have a, a creature that feeds on fear, you make, you end up finding out your what your player characters actually fear. Yeah. Because you get them to develop their characters in that way. And this is that's that's kind of cool because, as you said, it allows you to to showcase something, which, as you said, is say in that case is is fear and however you want to to investigate the concept of fear. But also, it, that's your main plot for the episode. It doesn't stop you having the the, the larger plots carrying on parallel to it. Yeah, I mean, maybe maybe someone set this yeah, yeah. on on the loose, and you might get a hint how that's happened um, and so yeah certainly I've, the, the series I've, I've been watching helped me out with that um, but also I've, you know I, I've, I watch a lot of horror movies I read a lot of books I just watched Wreck again which is a fantastic film um, if you want to see um, a lot of horror movies are set out in the middle of nowhere mm. um, Wreck is amazing because it's in the middle of a, a city and yet everything goes so horribly wrong. Um, yes, people should go watch Rack. Don't watch the the shot for shot American remake of it. Bollocks. Um, no, Rack's really good, and if anything, Rack's an amazing film because even though it has a, I would say it has a definite, it has a definite conclusion. It the beauty of that film is the ambiguity it still leaves with uh, the origin of the of the. Um, I think the best way to describe it is paranormal uh, shitstorm. Shitstorm. Pa- paranormal <laughs> shitstorm. Yeah, that yeah. makes. Um, so yeah, I mean, obviously, yeah, I watch a lot of um, horror films. I mean, hell, I'm watching, rewatching season one of Smallville right now because I have nothing else to watch. But yeah, it's. But even then, you can see, you can literally take pull an idea of um, even from something like Smallville, you can pull a. A, a concept from that, and it can be either a paranormal creature, or at least you know, you can look at say the the um, the way certain characters work. So, uh, for example, you think well, actually, Le- the the concept of Lex Luthor from the series of how how his character works would make a perfect say NPC for your setting. So you could actually you can actually pull whole characters almost from. TV series and films and books, and just kind of reskin them 
Mm. Borrow mannerisms and little... Oh, yeah, mannerisms, hell yeah. Borrow as many mannerisms... That's the reason to watch TV series and listen to them properly. Borrow mannerisms. Mannerisms work as I don't... Have I ever freaked you out with any of my mannerisms in, in any of the games you've taken part in? Oh, in, in the games, not so much. In real life, all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is, this is something that was really difficult to do. Um, you know, uh, in my vampire setting, there's the... There's a Nosferatu character called Nails. Oh, wait. Come across him. Did we have... I think we had an unfortunate run-in with him, and we... Um... Yeah, yeah, you did. You did have an unfortunate <laughs> run-in with him, didn't you? Yes. Um, we we kind of didn't get to talk with him very much because we... He was uh, in the middle of feeding, and you, you pissed him off. You walked in on him, and he was feeding. Yeah. Well, basically, I had um, cats, a uh, vampire character, when, the, when I did a Requiem one-shot that carried on from my setting, and... Yeah, I it felt rather awkward at the time before I did it. Was basically in character. I kind of semi uh, held my thumb on my uh, on my throat to give myself a, a very rasping voice to be his voice, and then proceeded to berate, shout down, and swear at at Cat, which is very bad because it it felt like. Uh, I think David's going to hate me for, for swearing at his, his wife, essentially. Um, but she was okay with it, because uh, essentially she just thought it was hilarious. Um, but the point is, mannerisms really help, don't they? So. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like, um, I I always like to play in character, um, and I play I play sometimes very much in character. <laughs> so I will I will not just be, you know, telling people what, Chuck Taylor is doing, I will be Chuck Taylor! Yeah. You know, I, I move around and I, I, I sit quietly in character. Um, and it helps, like, you, you really kind of, and, and certainly for GMs as well, uh, or storytellers, pardon me, um, it really helps make someone memorable. It makes, it can be really creepy. And that's what, that's one of the nice things with horror. Um, but you can you can give away a lot as well if you're not just doing like a flat out a flat de- delivery. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you, for example, I guess I'm just trying to think of it. If you if you know what the mannerisms are, and obviously if you're playing those mannerisms the same each time, yeah, it means then that you can actually give the players visual or audible cues when there is something wrong with that NPC. Yeah, like we had, I think one of the characters in the vampire setting was very, they're always very cool and calm, but we had, we had some information on them and they knew it and they got very, they knew we had information, but we didn't realise it was on them, I think. And they yeah, 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 yeah. with us. Um, and that made us consider the actual information we had and that maybe it wasn't just, uh, or that we actually had an idea of who it was. Yeah. And that's, that's really cool that you can. I mean, you don't right. have to roll any bloody dice, even then, do you? You don't have to do anything complicated. You can just play it out. I mean, obviously, it relies on players. It relies on a certain amount of understanding between yourself and your players that you know they're going to pick up on these cues. And if if they don't, or by all means, I think this is the warning we give. If you if you've got some players with you 
or you don't think you can roleplay that out, please rely on the dice, because if, you know, please don't start penalising players just because they didn't pick up the fact that your character suddenly isn't doing a certain mannerism anymore because he's completely stressed out about something. Mm. That's shit. <laughs> it's, it's, a nice, it's a nice thing to augment, um, augment the experience. I'm trying to think of anything else that inspires me. I play a lot of video games. Video games. Of course. <laughs> yeah, in the games industry, I, I do play a lot of games, and that's and even games design. You know, my job has helped me a lot with experiences that you can you start to gauge things like player player retention and things like that. You think, how am I going to make sure that the players are actually enjoying themselves? How do I make sure that they the very first instance of this game is going to give them an idea of how this whole thing is going to pan out. Mm. And that's that's something that I, I have experience of from working with game tutorials, but it's still handy to know, um, it's still handy to apply to pen and paper role-playing, because when you have new ca- new uh, new gamers, they I've encountered a lot of people who are a little bit reticent about actually playing. They still have the view that, you know, it's only really nerdy geeks play roleplay games. And then you show them that actually, you know, it's, it's good fun. Mm. You're wearing their pocket protectors. And, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I can't really say much more on, uh, inspiration. I would just say, you know, pretty much everything out there can inspire you in some way. And, you know, the, and of course don't limit yourself just to say one set of books, you know, again, Dark Days is totally all about taking classic World of Darkness and New World of Darkness books and use them in, in, in either way, any any combination and it will work. So I think that pretty much wraps everything up for this Darkness Begins. I hope it gives people an idea on like type, the way that I run Chronicles and how, um, things I consider when I start uh, setting up a game in a way and gives people an idea of, of what steps you're taking, James, in setting up your own game, considering it's your first World of Darkness Chronicle that you'll be running. So next time in this series, we'll be looking in some of these things in more detail, which is Chronicle Outline. So just give people a rundown of what to expect. And this builds upon maybe more of what we've already spoken about, but it's what sort of preparation should you do? So this looks at NPCs, setting history, and uh, a web of intrigue. Um, again, when is there too much? And how many other spots do you want to use, if any? And all the extra rules. It also will be looking at can you have too many plots going on in your game? And when to realise a plot is possibly too complex, and also underestimating the length and complexity of your chronicle, because obviously that could happen. Uh, and also, what sort of player character combinations are you going to allow? So again, this is kind of like, is there too much in your game? It's all about, as a, as a, as a storyteller, um, setting certain limitations on the type of game that you're running to make it manageable. So until then, and hopefully we will record the next one in a week or so of this one, 
Uh, it's goodbye from me, Chris, and it's goodbye from my friend James. Goodbye. <laughs> so if people want to get in contact with any comments on this Darkwing or any others, or have any other questions or contributions they want to make, or have their own Darkwings that they've recorded that they want to contribute, the email address to get hold of us is darkerdaysradio at gmail.com. And also, we have a Facebook page where people get in contact with us there and post stuff up. Uh, if you have information for, say, secret frequencies. And also, maybe if people have ideas for what films they would like to see Darker Days do a World of Darkness treatment on, please tell us. Uh, we also have a page on Google+. Uh, we are also on Twitter. Uh, we also have a Posterous account, uh, which is the Darker Days Posterous. Uh, the link for that should be found on the Facebook page. Uh, that's more like a place where I post up kind of blog posts and reviews, and people should feel free to comment there or submit their own blog posts or reviews of books because I don't have time to read them all, uh, or at least make reviews for them, so please do so. Uh, and also, if you have any uh, time to talk to us at all, we have some forum space on wadnews.net, which was kindly donated to us by Harlequin there. So, again, go there, tell us if we're doing something wrong, tell us if we're doing something right. I think that just about covers it, James. I think that does. Right. So, goodbye. Goodbye.